Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. I'm Constance Grady. I write for Vox about culture and gender, and today I'm sitting in for Sean Illing. We've known that a lot of our culture's most beloved artists have done some pretty messed up things for a long, long time. Picasso was terrible to women. Hemingway beat his wife. Roman Polanski raped a child. For a long, long time, most people have kind of let it slide. They watch Chinatown. They like Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. The backstory doesn't bother them too much. But almost six years ago, in October of 2017, two weird things happened. The first weird thing is that a whole bunch more of our most beloved artists got accused of doing even more messed up things. And the second weird thing is that all of a sudden, almost out of nowhere, people started to care about it. Louis C.K. was accused of sexual harassment. Netflix and HBO canceled their deals with him. Kevin Spacey was accused of sexual assault. He got cut out of a movie he was in just a month before it was released. Then people started to go back and look at the artists whose sins we already knew about. Michael Jackson, Woody Allen, Bill Cosby. These were artists whose work audiences had loved for decades. And audiences were starting to feel kind of weird about it. They were confused by a big question, one we're still grappling with. What do we do with the art we love when the artist who made it did something terrible? I'm Constance Grady, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Claire Dieterer. Claire's an essayist and author who's written for The New York Times, The Atlantic, and The Paris Review. She's here today with me to talk about her new book, Out Now. It's titled Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma. Between you and me, there has been a lot written over the past six years about how to handle monstrous art. Like, a lot. But Claire's book is the most interesting and nuanced approach I've come about so far. She's the kind of critic who reckons with both facts and feelings and doesn't try to force people to take their emotions out of the equation when it comes to dealing with art. 
I wanted to talk with her about how to find nuance in a conversation that can get very charged very fast. I really want to know, is there actually anything we should be doing about the art of monstrous men? So, Claire, how did you first get interested in this question of what to do with the art of monstrous men? I was actually writing a previous book that was a memoir about growing up in the 1970s and 80s, growing up as a girl in what was then a quite predatory culture toward young girls. And uh, some of the book was about my own experiences of predation at the at the hands of older men. And because the subject matter was such a bummer, one of the things I did was I used different forms of uh, experimental kind of play to tell the story. So there's lists in the book and maps and all these different approaches to the material. And one of the ways I approached it was through an open letter to Roman Polanski, who, even though it was a memoir and I did not know Polanski, I sort of used him as a kind of straw man or totem figure for this idea of the predatory man. And so some of the book is written in direct address to Roman Polanski. And in aid of that, I did research the crime quite a bit, his rape of a a really dark rape of a young girl um, in the late 70s. And uh, I researched the crime and I read her deposition. I, I really learned a lot about what happened. And yet at the same time, I was a huge fan of his work. I had been a film critic, and he's one of my very favorite directors. I'd say Repulsion is in my top films of all time. And after I finished writing the book, I found I could still consume the work. You know, I was still able to sit down and watch, for instance, Rosemary's Baby or Chinatown. And there were feelings that came up when I consumed it, but I was able to do it. And I thought, this is an interesting problem. And this was in 2014 or 2015 before sort of the great Me Too reckoning we saw at the end of 2017. And I think a lot of people would look at this situation you're articulating where you know a lot about the crime, but you still enjoy the art and say, well, that's how it should be, right? This idea that we should not worry too much about the monstrousness of artists and that we should separate biography from art. So how do you respond to that approach? Yeah, I think in the story I just told you, I think the crucial detail is the feelings I had as I tried to watch the film and the the unsettled, uncomfortable feeling given what I knew about the biography. And as I began to think about this problem more, and especially as I began to write about Woody Allen, who's one of the great figureheads of this problem, and I tried to watch Manhattan and thought about that work, I realized that, you know, I I sort of started getting feedback from other critics or certainly from male critics that I ought to be able to separate the art from the artist, that that is something I should be doing. And what was fascinating to me was that idea of a... um, of a prescription for what I ought to do because I wasn't and I couldn't. That wasn't my experience of having what I knew about Woody Allen influence, say, the watching of Manhattan, which is his film about a 40-something man who has sex with a, or has a girlfriend who's 17 and then 18. And that wasn't like, it's not a willed experience. I wasn't making a decision that it was going to work this certain way. It was just happening. And as somebody who is you know, writes memoir and writes personal essays, I became interested in, well, like, what is happening? Rather than thinking, here's what I ought to do. It's like, but this is happening. So how can I stop it would be my question. 
So I want to take a second to define our terms a little bit here because you do that so beautifully in the book. First of all, if we're talking about the art of monstrous men, what do we mean by monster? Yeah, the word monster came up early on in the writing of the book, and it certainly was a word, you know, the book started, I started writing it in 2015 or 2016, and it was certainly a word that emerged during the fall of 2017, as we started to talk about, you know, as the accusations started to come fast and furious in the in the Me Too reckoning of that season. So it was just a word that I kept seeing, which I thought was interesting. But I was also thinking about a quote from Jenny Offal, who wrote this novel, Department of Speculation. And in that book, she writes about the idea of the art monster, which is a person who doesn't have to think about anything else besides making art, and they can only focus on this one thing, and they always have someone else there, a wife, to take care of other things, right? So that was an echo or an idea I wanted to weave into the book as well. So that was why monsters came forward as a term. But as I thought about it, I immediately, of course, asked exactly what you just did. What do I mean by this word? What's my definition? And my definition became more elastic as time went on, and it really became someone whose biography, what we know of their biography, disrupts our experience of the work or disrupts my experience of the work. And that becomes a really much more interesting category than just pointing you. And that was the other thing about the word monster is it's very othering. It's very finger pointing. You're over there. I'm over here. You're the bad guy. I'm just fine. And I was interested in a more complicated inquiry. And then you also, in the book, you take a little time to question the word we in the sentence, what do we do with the art created by monstrous men? You write, we is corrupt, we is make-believe. So what do you mean by that? As I began to think about the problem, I realized that one of the things I was most interested in was disrupting false, I'm using I'm using that word again, but but sort of dismantling or dethroning false or too easy authority. So I feel like when you talk about this problem, what often happens is there's sort of a balance always, right, between the badness of the crime and the greatness of the work. And, you know, of course I was thinking about the crime or the bad behavior, but also what do we mean by greatness of the work and who gets to decide? And who gets to decide that, that the work is so great we're going to forget the crime? You know, that's such a, that's an authoritative stance. So there's all different kinds of ways I go after the idea of critical authority in the book, but the term we, where we sort of, we, create this shared experience that somehow puts a, a stamp of approval on an idea without asking the speaker, the critic, to just own that idea as their idea, their experience. And the primacy of individual experience is at the core of this book. This is a book about the subjective experience of each audience member. And that's an experience that it seems like the way it is talked about has changed a lot in, in a relatively short period of time. So looking at the timeline a little bit here, you're working on this memoir project with its open letter to Polanski at the beginning of the 2010s, right? Mm -hmm. And then around 2017, in the fall of that year, Me Too gets into this big public conversation after the Weinstein accusations come out in October 2017, where suddenly 
every day another man is accused of another horrible crime and all of a sudden people are really caring about, you know, what Woody Allen did and what Bill Cosby did, even though we sort of already knew that. Mm -hmm. So as someone who's been engaged with this question for a while, do you see a difference in the way that people began approaching this question after Me Too became really public? Yeah, I think it's... uh... It's been an interesting uh, journey, to use a memoir word. I think that in 2017, and, you know, for some time previous to that and some time after that, I think that there was a much more, um, it was almost like the world was divided into two halves. The halves of the people who said, you shouldn't worry about the biography, and then the people who believed that all the work should be thrown out. And that that latter voice I'm talking about, the voice that says, we're just going to let go of this work, was very strong for some time. And I think that it's interesting to have published this book now, as opposed to publishing it in, say, 2018 or 2019, when I probably should have finished writing it. Because the first thing that happened was people stood up and said something that happened to them. There was, you know, we call it cancellation or accusation, but really it's people raising their hand and saying this thing occurred, and that's important. The response to it then sort of steamrolled into this jacques moment of sort of culturally casting these men out. But I think that in the past couple years, there's been more of an understanding that we lose something when we do that, that we as audience members, whether we're, you know, women consuming the work of Roman Polanski or maybe trans people consuming the the Harry Potter novels or whoever we are, we don't want to deny ourselves of the work that we love. And I think that that conversation has become more complex and more nuanced over the past year or two in a way that's been really surprising and exciting to me. I mean, do you think so? Do you think it's changed? I think definitely... The conversation has cooled down a lot than where it was in 2017. That was such an interesting and compelling moment in time, I think, because there was this kind of delight in noticing that people suddenly took these stories seriously the way they hadn't before. And I think there was a little element of like, well, how far can we go with that? Like, how far can we take this taking seriously? And now... There's definitely been, I would say, a bit of a backlash to that, the red hotness of that moment. But I think there has also been um, an opportunity to explore a few more nuances as we sort of piece out what this reaction is. Mm -hmm. I want to take a second to focus in a little bit on this idea of the genius, right? So this is the idea of the artist who can do whatever he wants and the art he makes has sort of transcended him out of the bounds of normal human behavior. And I'm saying he here because we mostly, when we talk about geniuses like that, we're mostly talking about men and mostly white men. So like, as you lay out in the book, Picasso and Hemingway and Polanski and Woody Allen. And part of the backlash I'm talking about, I think, is we'll see folks on the right get really frantic about the idea that Me Too and the kids today and the wokeness have all permanently dethroned the figure (laughs) of the genius. So do you think that's the case? Have we lost the genius from the culture? That did make me laugh, and I'm thinking about why that made me laugh. I think because that's so far from the truth, this idea that genius can be dethroned. But also, what are we dethroning, right? I mean, 
there's this sort of idea of the genius that sort of is an umbrella term or something that floats free of these individual artists. And certainly nobody's saying we're never going to read Hemingway again or look at Gauguin or Picasso again. So maybe they won't get called genius in exactly the same way, but they're certainly going to be part of the culture. And that idea of genius, I think, has done so much work to smooth over some of these accusations and and not only smooth them over, but kind of make a virtue out of them. So an idea I deal with in the book is that the genius is the person who is responding to what I think you could call artistic impulse. You can call it the muse. You can call it some, you know, an energy that's greater than himself. And that certainly corresponds with our idea of Picasso and how he is very gestural painting and very responsive to some larger force that he's subject to. And there's a way in which there's a kind of mental leap if he's subject to this artistic impulse that gives us all this work that we think is important and good, then maybe all his other impulses also need to be protected, coddled, accepted, maybe even revered. So that there's the, all the sort of hall pass he gets for the work then goes over to the behavior as well. And when I first started thinking about this, I was thinking about Picasso and Hemingway in particular as examples of this, you know, that they are these characters, they're these biographic personae are brawling and male and they, you know, abusive to women and children and, and then that's somehow tied to this like very free art that they make or this very masculine art that they make. And as I thought about it more, I realized that that image of the artist, that 20th century idea of the genius isn't just one that they embodied, but one that they helped to create. Because Hemingway and Picasso were the writer and the artist of the early mass media era. And aside from being both truly, truly great artists, they were great at using that media. They were great at having a persona that was saleable and that was very dominant in the media. And so they are examples of genius, but they also both helped shape the idea of genius that then passes through certain abstract expressionists, certain other writers, and I think finds its fullest expression in rock and roll. This idea of the man, the white male performer who's totally free and his freedom is just as important offstage as it is on stage. We let geniuses get away with a lot, particularly if they're white men. But what happens when the genius is Kanye West? That's coming up after a quick break. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. The internet is big. And if you're trying to run your own business, it can make you feel pretty small. Hard for your customers to find. But Shopify can help you carve out your own little corner of the web with your own online shop. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether it's through their all-in-one e-commerce platform or their in-person point-of-sale system, you can sell anywhere with Shopify. Tons of brands you might recognize rely on Shopify to power their e-commerce, like Rothy's, Allbirds, Brooklinen, and more. Whether you're just starting out or have years in the game, Shopify's got you covered. 
You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash vox, all lowercase. You can go to shopify.com slash vox now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash vox. Support for the gray area comes from Bombas. Sometimes the littlest things can ruin your day, like a pair of socks that you should have retired months ago. If you need to upgrade your sock drawer, Bombas has got you covered. Bombas designed socks with an eye for detail, with stuff like foot-hugging, honeycomb arch support, anti-blister tabs, and cushioned footbeds. They also have other apparel, like t-shirts and underwear. Bombas also says that for every item you buy from them, they'll donate one essential clothing item to someone facing homelessness. Bombas actually sent me a few pairs of socks and a pair of boxers about three months ago, two or three months ago, and they're great. It's the best pair of boxers I own, and every time I do laundry, my three pairs of Bombas socks move right up to the top of the rotation. I wear them to the gym, I wear them around the house, I wear them when I go for walks. Hell, I'd wear them when I was sleeping if it wasn't too hot. You can get comfy this spring and give back with Bombas. You can head over to bombas.com slash gray area and use code gray area for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash gray area and use code gray area at checkout. someone like Hemingway and for Picasso, the masculinity is at the center of the image. And then you get to Woody Allen. And at the center of his image is this sort of nebbishy, egghead nerdiness, which is his expression of masculinity. And that also somehow sort of seems to make him more of an artist than if he were in some way less masculine. So how is it that men get to have it both ways so easily when they're embodying this figure of the genius? You know, there's a freedom of self-expression that's available to men that has to do with this range of humanity that you can occupy that's very broad, that you can move around in if you are in this role, in this culturally dominant role, that you get to express the full range of what it is to be human in a way that's more difficult for maybe a woman or a person of color who's making art. And I think Alan's fascinating. I think of him as being very tied to Chaplin in my mind, as being this kind of dominant, incredible filmmaker and this incredible shaper of narratives, but at the same time somehow keeping this almost little kid quality or, as you say, nebishy, there's sort of a acted-upon quality that's a little bit different mm. than the way we think of other kinds of geniuses. The great protestation of innocence. <laughs> so you mentioned that this figure um, kind of comes to its full flower with rock and roll. What are some of the examples we see of the genius and the freedom in rock and roll? So I had a whole chapter about rock and roll in the book. It was very long. It was like 20,000 words long. And we took it out because... If I may quote my editor, who's a very smart woman, it's so boring. And the reason it was so boring is because you see the same story told over and over. You have Led Zeppelin in there, and it's always the same thing. It's you trash a hotel room and you have sex with a very young girl. I mean, it's just over and over. And that's what's so interesting about this freedom. Is it really that free? 
I mean, you know, there's this way in which the masculinity itself becomes a trap. But I think of, you know, for instance, Jim Morrison would be an example of somebody who projects that kind of very artistic freedom. And I always think of him pulling his penis out on stage as this, like, ultimate expression of masculinity and doing what you want. But certainly, you know, it kind of reaches its fullest expression in, I think, a lot about um, Motley Crue and how when they came along, all of these previous rock stars had sort of had their onstage persona and then had the things they did offstage to kind of thicken that stew or en enrich the sauce of their rock. But Motley Crue did this incredible thing where they turned it around, where they sort of, you know, did all the biographical things and the music was almost ancillary to that. And I always think of the VH1 show behind the music. And when I think of Motley Crue, I always think they should call it instead of the music because they sort of did all the behaviors and they have these sort of songs that go along with it. But the songs are way less important important than the projection of the rock star behaviors and images. So to me, they're sort of the full flower of it, which is, you know, once they've bent the knee to Ozzy Osbourne and he in turn to Led Zeppelin, all they're left with is this hollow vessel of gesture. And one of the things that did make it into the book is you talk a little bit about Kanye West in comparison to this figure, which is so interesting because Kanye is absolutely of our current generation of musical stars, I think, one of the best at making his lifestyle and the spectacle of it part of the art, but that has also been his downfall in a way that seems really different from our reaction to a lot of these male rock stars. Yeah, so Kanye is sort of a ghost that haunts this book. I could have written the whole book about Kanye, and he was simply a story I couldn't keep up with fast enough to include in the book. There's very few contemporary examples that I write about simply because we didn't want to end up with something that would seem past its sell-by date a season later. The idea is that the book will have some legs to it. And Kanye, even at a certain point, I was going to write about his kind of performance of mental illness or the way that his mental illness was packaged and sold. But then he was on to the next thing, and then he was on to the next thing. So he's really Quicksilver in that way. But I do talk about him briefly in the book because he has this incredible quote from many, many years ago in Rolling Stone where he talks about he says that he's a rock star rather than a rap star because he has the freedom available to him of the rock star. And the rock star can be barefoot. The rock star can wear, I can't remember what the whole quote is, but can, you know, ride around in a limousine, can be barefoot, can be a family man, can have sex with groupies and never have any backlash. And so he's saying that person, but by the end of the paragraph, he's turned it around and says, what's that thing I always get again? Oh yeah, backlash. So he sort of starts out asserting, I am a rock star, kind of echoing his own line, I am a god. And then by the end, he's undercutting himself. And to me, that has a I had a racial reading of that paragraph, that there's a freedom to the white male performer that even as Kanye sort of keeps trying to enact that freedom is not quite available to him. So you talk a little about this idea that I think is so provocative, that genius is compelling to us specifically because of this idea that the genius is a bad person, sort of in the same way that Trump supporters find his cruelty and his transgressions to be really exciting and attractive. 
you said maybe we have created the idea of genius to serve our own attraction to darkness. So how do you see that idea playing out in these conversations that we keep having about what to do with these monstrous artists? Well, I actually think that is one idea that has taken a licking in the last few years, is this idea of the genius bad boy artist, which again, you really see in the way that rock stars become these kind of avatars of their listeners, where they're doing these behaviors, and that's kind of thrilling. I mean, you think about, it's ridiculous to pick on him, but if you think about Ted Nugent, I mean, he has songs about basically performing statutory rape. I mean, he has really, really dark songs. And so clearly, that's a situation in which he's sort of voicing something that's a perceived desire of his listenership, that he's sort of acting out something that's an id. And I think that that kind of bad boy status is something, and I I don't have anything to back this up, but just as a sort of a cultural observer, I do think that that's something that's more taken with a grain of salt now that this dialogue about Me Too has been going on for so long. I think one of the things you bring up in this book is this sort of bizarre moral calculus you can find yourself doing once you get really into this question of, like, is it okay to consume something from one part of the career but not the other part? And what if I already own it so it's not like I'm spending money? Can you sort of walk me through some of the the versions of these thought processes that you see? Yeah, I think that, you know, it's interesting because I do kind of come to a prescriptive place toward the end of the book, but for the most part, I'm really looking at different responses. And some of, so there's sort of the idea that, well, I could consume the work previous to the crime. So you might think about that with, I mean, certainly with Polanski, Polanski is always this incredible example to talk about in almost all of the topics we've brought up. He's an incredible example, you know, and his parents he was a victim of the Holocaust. His parents were victims of the Holocaust. He fled to America. Once he came to America, his wife and unborn child were murdered by the Manson family. So as I say in the book, sort of two of the violent acts of the 20th century happened to him personally. And he's an incredible figure. I mean, he was an art student. He came to America. He made his first film. It was Knife in the Water. I think he was on the cover of either Life or Time right away. I mean, clearly a prodigy, a prodigiously gifted person. And there's people who feel, and I have some of this feeling, that it's easier to consume the work before the rape, that there's this kind of freedom for me as a viewer, as if he was a different person before that. And then he was transformed into this other more monstrous person after the event of the rape. And so that's one approach people take. Some people just don't want to spend the money, which is a really pragmatic approach. They just don't want to line the pockets of a living artist. You know, and then there's every response to like everything from people who can really brutally separate the art from the artist and don't care to people who, I talk in the book about a friend who was a a rape victim who thinks that Not only does she not want to consume art by men who've been accused, but that it should all just be thrown out and that no one should consume it. So there's this range of responses. I think the thing that's interesting about the idea of the person changing at the moment of their crime is it's it really gets at this problem of what is biographical identity. I mean, who are you? Are you, if you're Roman Polanski, are you defined by your crime? Are you defined by your work? And does the stain of what you did travel backward through time? And I don't know the answers to these questions. All I know are that most people's responses to these questions 
are largely intuitive and uh, they might be moral, but as I say in the book, they're moral feelings rather than really being thoughts. Yeah, and this is something that you bring out really beautifully in the book, this idea that these are not questions you can think your way out of, that they are something that you have to feel through. So can you lay out a little bit what you mean by feeling as opposed to thinking in these contexts? Yeah, I think it goes back to what I brought up earlier about, well, first about the idea of balancing the badness of the crime versus the greatness of the work. And how you feel about these two things is hugely dependent upon your own biography. So, you know, if you're someone who's a survivor of assault, or if you're somebody who's grown up with racism, or you're somebody who has any number of a range of experiences, you're going to have a different feeling about whatever the offense is than the next guy will. I think the really important thing to remember is the same thing is true for the work. It's not very useful to my mind to decide that X work is great, so we should celebrate it. Because who gets to decide? Who gets to say this work is important? The minute we start doing that, we start sort of have hierarchical segments of the population because people have different connections to work. I mean, the Huxtables are the perfect example of this. Like, the Huxtables might have been really important to you when you were growing up as, as a kind of model family in a way that somebody else doesn't have the same perspective on. A white person doesn't have the same perspective on. So your feeling, your biography, your subjectivity, your kind of moment in history, who you are culturally and with your gender, all those things create how you experience the work and how you experience the crime. And so to me, there's a way to talk about it. The emotionality comes out of the specificity of your experience. And I'm less interested in whether or not you think the work to be great, which is a very complicated thing to establish, but whether you feel love for the work. And that's why, for me, the kind of book broke open when I read Pearl Clegg's essay, Mad at Miles. So it's an incredible piece of writing, and I hope that, you know, more people come to it. She's, she is writing about her love of Miles Davis. And the essay is called Mad at Miles, so she's leading right up front with her emotion, right? It's an emotion that's leading off the essay. And she's talking about how when she fell in love with Kind of Blue, she didn't know about, you know, he himself has confessed his assaults. It's not like it's something that he's just been accused of. And she didn't know about any of that. And she fell in love with Kind of Blue, and it wove its way into her life and came, as music does, to define certain eras of her life. Her life became coupled to this music. This is the part when my marriage ended. This is when I started dating other people. This is when I was doubting myself. All of those were connected with the music, all of those moments. And so she talks about that love of the work, not the greatness of, though it is certainly a masterpiece, you know, and Miles is, if we're going to use the genius model, he's certainly a genius, but she's talking about a personal love that comes from her own experience. Then, when she found out what he had done, it was her personal betrayal. It was her betrayal as someone who had loved the music, who was a Black woman who didn't want to be accusing a Black man of these crimes. All different, you know, her own experience as a survivor came into it. So to me, it's very brave to write in that subjective way about this question. It's very not, I mean, brave is such a tossed around word, but she really cites her critique in her own subjective experience in a way that I found just 
breathtaking. And when I read that, I didn't think, oh, well, this is Pearl Clegg's experience, therefore I should have the same experience. What I thought was, oh, here's a person laying out their subjective experience. That is what I'm going to try to do in my response to this work in this book. And then hopefully that creates a dynamic where the reader can then sort of think about art they love and crimes they've come to know of, biographies they've come to know of from their own subjective experience. So the the feeling and the subjectivity are really married and really crucial to the whole project of the book. What is the role of the audience when it comes to art monsters? That's coming up after one more quick break. Support for this show comes from NetSuite. Growth can be a beautiful thing, like changing out your kid's shoes when they get too big or upgrading that puppy food to an adult recipe. But as a business owner, you understand that growth also comes with complications. And when your business gets to a certain size, the cracks can start to emerge. That's why you should know these three numbers, 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000. That's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. One, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance. Absolutely free at netsuite.com slash gray area. That's netsuite.com slash gray area to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash gray area. Startups, you don't need to settle for a cumbersome banking experience to protect your money. Mercury offers banking and credit cards with effortless experience, giving ambitious companies greater precision, control, and focus without compromising security. Open smarter checking and savings accounts, control spend, optimize cash flow, and close the books in record time. Visit mercury.com to join more than 100,000 startups that trust Mercury with their finances and to help them perform at their highest level. One of the big tensions in this book that is laid out really beautifully is that our reaction to the work of art is necessarily so personal and can't really be dictated by anyone and can't be taken away by anyone. But at the same time, one of the ideas you narrow in on is this sense that it's not really fair that this sense of responsibility has ended up on our heads, the audience's heads, as individual consumers that, you know, we're left in this place where we love Miles Davis and now because he's done something terrible, we have to stop listening to him. That's so unfair. So can you talk a little about how this sense of responsibility ends up on the heads of the audience and what the issues there are? Yeah, I think that that's one of those ideas that really blossomed and grew 
as I worked on the book over this period of the last few years when we've all undergone just so many events, so many things have happened. And I personally had undergone, you know, I had thought politically, I'd, I'd changed as a political subject. So in the opening of the book, I think there's a much more traditional, punitive, liberal, feminist point of view where it's sort of like, that guy's wrong, let's get him out of here. You know, that's sort of more straightforward. And over the course of the book, which I started writing in 2016 and really finished at the end of 2022, I think many of us underwent a political education. And what happened for me as just as a person in the world was a growing understanding of systemic problems and thinking about systemic solutions, allowing myself to desire systemic solutions, which feels kind of um, juvenile sometimes to want that kind of solution, but is really important that we keep in touch with that feeling, in my opinion, and sort of getting away from the idea that each of us can individually solve each problem. So it's sort of an idea I grew into where I really started thinking about what is my role in this kind of larger cultural system and capitalist system. And in the system of capital, we are consumers. You know, we might produce, we might have different roles, but at heart, what our role is, our job is to consume. And it's a very disempowered, narrow gig that we have. And I find it fascinating that when you have this problem that we sometimes call Me Too and we sometimes call cancel culture and we sometimes call accusation. But you have a problem where somebody raises their hand and says, this person, this famous person did something rotten. Then there's this sort of great leap over all potential responses to the consumer response. And we're left with the sense that it's our individual responsibility. Even though that person has been supported by institutions, has been supported by business models, you know, has often been aided and abetted in their crimes, maybe not directly, but sort of indirectly through all kinds of different factors. All that stuff happens. That person's unleashed on the world, and then we're left as individuals to solve it. And coming to that idea about the role of the audience, that was a really radical idea to me, that I was being kind of forced into this very narrow idea that I should solve the problem through, and this is the important part, through my consumption. And I think that ultimately the book comes away, and I don't want to, you know, not to scoop myself, but saying that, you know, maybe, maybe this expression of morality through what you consume, if your ethics are being expressed through what you consume, maybe that's a dead end. Maybe you could think about a different way to be a good person and not try to express that through the means of your consumption. So I want to linger a little bit on this idea. You write in the book, the fact is that our consumption or lack thereof of the work is essentially meaningless as an ethical gesture. That's a line I've been thinking about a lot over the past couple of weeks with a slightly less high stakes dilemma. But I wonder if you have been following the internet brouhaha over Taylor Swift and Maddie Healy. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Yes, I generally follow these days. I follow the internet brouhaha's because they do come up a lot for me. So would you be able to do a quick summary for listeners who maybe have not been following? Whew. Okay. Taylor Swift broke up with her longtime partner who was an inoffensive English actor named Joe Alwyn. And she took up with Maddie Healy, or Matt Healy, 
who is the singer of the sometimes adored, sometimes mocked band, the 1975, who have the one big hit that people will know. And Matt Healy had gone on maybe just one podcast or maybe several. Yeah, he, I think we can summarize as like he has said and done some things on like questionable to racist part of the spectrum. And kind of Nazi adjacent as well. He did a Nazi salute on stage. There's some dispute as to whether it was satirical or or more literal, or if it's okay to be satirical with Nazi salutes, which we don't necessarily have to adjudicate. And then they broke up like a couple of days ago as we're putting this. But the reason I wanted to ask you is that we saw while they were dating a lot of Taylor Swift fans who were really, really upset at the idea that this relationship now made it somehow unethical to support Taylor Swift, right? And the sense is they had a lot of their identities bound up in the idea that she's a politically virtuous artist mm. and that supporting her mattered politically. And now that source of virtue has been taken from them. So I don't want to suggest that Taylor Swift dating a guy who made some racist jokes on a podcast is the same on an ethical level as Roman Polanski raping a child, of course. But it does seem as though the audience reaction to both of those situations exists on a similar sort of spectrum where this sense of our consumption of art as like an ethically meaningful act. So I'm wondering if any of the ideas we've talked about here, whether you see something that maybe could help a freaked out Taylor Swift fan navigate their way <laughs> through this. <laughs> I... Uh, I'm laughing at something my kids say, which is, get off the internet, you sickos. So that would be my advice in general. Touch grass. You heard it here. Right, exactly. Breaking news. I mean, you know, I'm torn on this one, to be honest, because I feel like the racial element is so uncomfortable. And what is her role? Is she responsible for her boyfriend's behavior? Why do we know about it? All of these, all of these questions are real, but it's also she's massively important performer with a large white audience ship, and it does change the conversation. So honestly, I don't know what the answer is. I've read extensively all about it, and it's definitely a problem. I think kind of what I can talk about, even though I don't have any words of comfort for anybody ever, um, is that thinking about why do I know who Maddie Healy is? I don't like that 1975 song that everybody knows. Like, it's fine, whatever. You know, why do I know this person's name? Why do I know about the Nazi salute? Why do I even really know about Taylor Swift's dating life? You know, I think it's it comes back to this idea that I brought up at the beginning of our conversation, which is this idea that you ought to separate the art from the artist. And my response being, well, I can't. So now what? And the reason that we can't is in a kind of intensely contemporary dynamic. You know, I'm 56 years old, and when I was a kid, it was very easy to separate the art from the artist because we didn't know anything about the artist. You know, you would wait years for there to be a new biography of the Beatles. Or, you know, I certainly, I grew up as a kind of alternative punk kid, and certainly the music I was interested in, I was never able to learn anything. Looking at the record cover was the most I could hope for. Maybe a mention in the CMJ. 
we now live in this moment, and it's a corporatized moment where biography is falling on our heads all the time. We cannot escape biography. The internet and biography are sort of the same. They're the circle in the Venn diagram, right? The internet's made out of biography, our biographies as social media users, and then the consumption of other people's biographies. So this idea, I think that the only thing I can really say is there's so much we can't unknow, and that we're living in this, like, there's this phrase, parasocial relationships, which has become more and more commonly known. It's an old sociological term that sort of has its roots in the birth of mass media media, where there's this potential for the audience to experience category errors. I mean, it's, I'm sure it's something that happens to you in your gig. When you go from a speaker being in a room where all the people can look back at the speaker, that's one kind of relationship. The minute you invent the radio or invent any kind of broadcast media, there's a confusion about the relationship of the listener to the speaker. Podcasts are this perfect example of this, where people feel so intensely close to podcast hosts because they have this mixed-up kind of emotional relationship to them because it feels like you're being spoken to directly. I mean, it's inevitable that people are going to have emotional relationships to Taylor's relationships. And I appreciate the feminist argument that we ought not to judge her for her partner, but it's like, too late. It's already happened. What are we going to unjudge? It's a fascinating dynamic. Okay, so we started this conversation with one big question, which is, what should we do with the art of monstrous men? Do we have an answer? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's been a really interesting experience with this question. So I started thinking about this problem, and I thought about it as something I wanted to describe that had sort of happened to me internally. Like, it was a memoirist impulse to examine an interior experience. And then Me Too happened, and then I took what was the first chapter of the book, and I published it on the Paris Review. And it was this essay that I did not write the title, What Do We Do With The Art of Monstrous Men? It's a brilliant title. It's been endlessly ripped off since we published it. My brilliant editor wrote it, not just Spiegelman. But it's an interesting question because for a long time, I thought, well, I have to answer this. But I think in some ways it's a misdirection because it's not actually what I'm trying to do is sort of the opposite of what the book's trying to do. The book is trying to tell you that when you come to the problem with your subjective experience with each different artist and your experience of the biographical information, that your subjectivity is what should be paid attention to. And I think that the only answer I give that's at all prescriptive is it's okay to not try to solve the problem through consumption. You don't have to solve rape culture and patriarchy through what song you listen to. That's not your job, and that's not the avenue to do it in. And I want to finish off with the question you bring up in your last chapter. You wind up on a really provocative argument saying— the question, what do we do with the art, is a kind of laboratory or practice for the real question, what is it to love someone awful? The problem is that you still love her. Which was particularly striking to me, I think, in part because we're living in this moment where it's kind of trendy in advice columns and Reddit and TikTok and other places for people to advise other people to just cut off contact with someone when they're terrible and just cut them out of your life, which is undoubtedly 
good advice in some scenarios. Like, there are certainly times where that is the move to make. But I'm wondering if any of the ideas that we've teased out here seem helpful for you for taking out of the laboratory of art and using when you're faced with the terrible people that you love in the real world. Yeah, I think that's, uh, nobody else has brought this up. And I've it's been kind of um, racketing around in my brain, this idea of no contact has really made an appearance on the scene. You know, maybe that's an Instagram wellness post or wherever it is that you see it. And it certainly comes up with friends more in their own therapy or relationships with their families. And I have been thinking about it. And I do think it sort of parallels some of the questions that I talk about in the book. Because no contact. I think it's really crucial for some people, as you just said. I think it can be a really valuable tool. I think that it can often be meaningful. I have a dear friend who's had a no-contact relationship with a parent, and that was not sustainable. That contact had to return. And it's sort of similar to this idea that you just have to cut off all relationship with the art, right? You're just going to let it go. But what are you missing, when you let go of that art. What is Pearl Clegg missing when she stops listening to Miles? That's what's incredible about the Pearl Clegg essay. You know, 15 years later or 20 years later, she was giving an in Atlanta magazine that I dug up somewhere, and she says, yeah, I listened to him again now. Maybe he'll be a nicer person when he comes back in his next life. And I think that I love that she gives herself the solace of his music. And I think the same thing goes for human relations. People are terrible. We all have terrible parts of ourselves. Pointing the finger at the other guy and saying, you're terrible is an easy thing to do. But the fact is, we all have dark parts of ourselves. And it's not just, how do I get along with this family member who's been rotten to me? But then turning it around and remembering, maybe sometimes I am that family member. So no contact is a complicated idea that I think exactly mirrors this problem of throwing out the art. So perhaps we're sort of in the same place with that conversation that we were with throwing out the art in 2017, and maybe in a couple of years we'll be able to come to it with a little more room for for gray areas. Yeah, I think that it does come from a really similar place where somebody has, like I say, raised their hand and said, hey, this is not okay. And that instigating impulse or that seed is important. It's important for people to say when stuff isn't okay, what happens next, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a great place to end up. So Claire, thank you so much. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I loved it. Patrick Boyd engineered this episode, Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. Let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. And if you appreciated this episode, please share with your friends and your family and on your social media channels. Sean Illing will be back with a new episode on Thursday, June 22nd. We're off on Juneteenth. Support for today's show comes from Deloitte. 
Do you want a career that meets you where you are and takes you where you want to go? Whatever your individual ambitions, motivations, and skills may be, discover your potential at Deloitte. Right along with purpose-driven teams and a difference-making culture. Be seen for who you are and celebrated for what you bring. Discover your impact at Deloitte. Learn more at deloitte.com slash us slash discover careers.